Hello and welcome. These are some sermons given by Monsignor Rosito from the years 1995 to the year 2016. Enjoy. Today is the first Sunday in Lent, and the epistle is taken from St. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Brethren, we entreat you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard thee, and in the day of salvation I have helped thee. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We give no offense to anyone that our ministry may not be blamed. On the contrary, let us conduct ourselves in all circumstances as God's ministers in much patience, in tribulations, in hardships, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleepless nights, in fastings, in innocence, in knowledge, in long sufferings, in kindness, and in the Holy Spirit, in unaffected love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, with the armor of justice on the right hand and on the left, in honor and dishonor, in evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet truthful, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as chastised but not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet enriching many, as having nothing yet possessing all things. So we see the contrasts of the good and the bad, and in it God's goodness uh, prevails, and our efforts in spite of the handicaps nevertheless produces this work in all sincerity and in justice. And we come now to the Gospel, taken from the Gospel of St. Matthew, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. At that time, Jesus was led into the desert by the Spirit, that is, the Holy Spirit, to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if thou art the Son of God, command that these stones become loaves of bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Not by bread alone does a man live, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If thou art the Son of God, throw thyself down, for it is written, he has given his angels charge concerning thee, and upon their hands they shall bear thee up, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written further, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he said to him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Begone, Satan, for it is written, The Lord thy God shalt thou worship, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So far are the words of this day's holy gospel. Begone, Satan, for it is written, The Lord thy God shalt thou worship, and him only shalt thou serve. These are words taken from the gospel of today's Holy Mass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. My dear friends in Christ, Shakespeare once wrote in a play, What's in a name? 
A rose by any other name would smell as sweet. And yet in another play he, to paraphrase him, says, He who steals my purse steals trash, but he who takes away my good name steals that which profits him nothing and indeed impoverishes me. What is in a name? Your own name identifies you. There are those who want to give us a number of identification instead of a name. But what is your name? It's interesting to look up the meaning of the name you bear. You can find it in a dictionary or some source book that gives the meaning of the various names of people, <clears throat> male and female. But what is God's name? Indeed, he too is identified by the simple word, identifying him as God. The Jews were very careful in the use of the name of God. In fact, they did not want to offend God by breaking the second commandment to keep holy the, the name of the Lord. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. So they never would even pronounce the name of God. They used substitute words for the name of God. As it's in the Bible, it's known as Yahweh, or translated into English equivalent, Jehovah. But he's also known as Elohim, or Adonai. In Jewish literature, <clears throat> you may find the name of God written G, capital G, dash, D, so that they do not even write the full name of God, which they consider very, very holy. Today we're going to consider the name of God and the reverence that we should give to his holy name. This is perhaps the essence of the second commandment, to have respect for God and the things of God and anything connected with God shares in that dignity that belongs to God and his creation. So we ask the question then from Lesson 98 in our Catechism booklets, what are we commanded by the Second Commandment? And the answer is, by the Second Commandment, we are commanded always to speak with reverence of God, of the saints, and of holy things. When I was a child, we were taught to respect all elderly people, whether you knew them or not. It was a sense of honor, reverence, dignity that you attributed to anyone who was elderly as through them to honor God himself. It presupposed, of course, that these elderly people were honorable, but we took for granted that they were, and we always gave deference to them and courtesy and politeness. And that carried with it <clears throat> a sense of appreciation of all things your toys, uh, the property of other people, were given respect likewise. So this general sense of reverence carried through in all the various facets of our lives. And we are to keep the second commandment in this spirit of reverence and respect, especially to, the God, to God and the things of God. And to be truthful in taking oaths and faithful to them and to our vows. From Psalm 115, we have these words, Blessed be the name of the Lord, 
from henceforth now and forever from the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same the name of the Lord is worthy of praise in monasteries God is honored praised worshipped especially through the whole day when the Angelus rang people would join with him in prayer at 12 o'clock at 6 o'clock and it was an honor given to God in prayer through the whole day from the morning rising to the setting of the sun our Lord says this I say to you do not swear at all we'll find out what swearing means in just a bit but let your speech be yes yes and no no which means be truthful without having to call upon God to be witness to what you say the tongue <clears throat> no man can tame St. James tells us out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing we'll find out what cursing is too uh, again we can see the good or the evil that we can put use to our tongue to our mouth to our minds our intelligence in general so we are to direct it in the proper direction to God and the things of God and to all other things likewise that fall in their proper places and relationships to God we should never speak God's name without holy respect. Now today in the movies and videos, uh, in conversations, we find a great lack of respect for the name of God. Cursing and swearing is becoming very commonplace even among young people. And this is breaking the second commandment, second importance to the first, of course, uh, in uh, the Ten Commandments. We should frequently call upon the name of God with true and heartfelt devotion. Now it's hard to keep this level of devotion high with heartfelt devotion, but it should be there at least in some way directed to God that we remember to guard our speech very carefully. I remember as a child, I had a companion who was very careful never to use swear words or cursing or misuse of God's name. He would get angry, things would happen, <clears throat> but he always bring it down to some very temperate means of expressing uh, something that otherwise could be used in place of a, uh, could be used as a curse word. <clears throat> and I was very impressed with this. Even to this day, I remember these things from the past. So we should have this devotion to the holy name of God, especially at the commencement and the end of our important actions and in time of trouble to call upon the name of God it is permissible to do so the thing is not to do so lightly or thoughtlessly or in misuse call upon me in the day of trouble I will deliver thee and thou shalt glorify me this again from one of the Psalms we should often praise God for his perfections and infinite goodness and particularly when we receive favors from him where are the other nine when the ten were cured of leprosy we should never forget also that we could be one of those nine if we don't give this kind of gratitude to God it is strange how often good gifts come to us from Almighty God and we simply take them without a word of thanks let us say that old let us say that old saying of true truly Christian hearts Deo gratias thanks be to God blessed Bless the Lord, O my soul, and never forget all he hath done for thee. And Job teaches us, in the midst of his misfortune, the Lord gives, the Lord 
takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Learn to say thank you to God for everything. Because he doesn't allow things to happen without his permission. So if it happens, then it's a gift from God that we can turn, if it's not so good for us, to a better thing by patience and by seeking a good that can come from whatever may seem to be evil. Bless the Lord at all times. The name of Jesus is the most powerful of all names. Through it, we can obtain all that we need. He says, if you ask the Father anything in my name, he will give it to you. We should pay reverence to the name of Jesus by bowing our head every time we speak it. Now, there is an indulgence given for this action of bowing the head at the name of Jesus. The priest does so at the Mass, and people do so when they think of it and becomes a way of um, acting when they too pronounce the name of Jesus to bow their head in reverence and receive this little indulgence that goes along with it. We should especially pronounce the name of Jesus at the hour of death for protection and strength against the evil one. The name of Jesus and the power of Christ is that which an exorcist uses to drive out the devil. And anyone who has any confrontation with the evil spirit calls upon the power in the name of Jesus to expel him or to ward off his incursions or obsessions that influence us sometimes um, more noticeably than at other times. So the holy name of Jesus then used is very powerful in shutting down the operation of the devil's work. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bend of those in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Even the devils have to bow to the name of Christ. St. Stephen's, that's the first martyr in the New Testament, his last words were, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. By the name of Jesus, the apostles and saints worked innumerable miracles, as St. Peter did when he said to the lame man, in the name of Jesus Christ, arise and walk. Holy Scripture truly says there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So reverently call upon the holy name of Jesus for the power that it contains and can be applied. And this is something we should know and realize, understand, and take advantage of. We have this power available to us, the power of Christ. He said, Behold, all things have been given to me. All authority is our Lord's even over the devils. So we belonging to Christ by baptism, maintaining that union through grace, have the power of Christ available to us in times of distress. What is meant then by taking God's name in vain? And we're going to get definitions here to clarify different degrees of uh, misuse of the holy name of God um, in the words that we sometimes confuse. Taking God's name in vain means that the name of God or the holy name of Jesus Christ is used without reverence. For example, to express surprise or anger. Uh, we don't think of expressing it. It just comes out that way sometimes as a bad habit. And because of a lack of attention or a realization, the seriousness is diminished. But it is still wrong. And we should cultivate the habit of always reverencing the holy name of God or of our Lord. And let not the naming of God be usual in thy mouth, and meddle not with the names of the saints, for thou shalt not escape free from them. This is from the book of Ecclesiastes. 
in the Old Testament. Profanity is the irreverent is use of irreverent language to be not talking against God, but uh, language that is irreverent uh, is profanity to be profane. We should not use sacred names in impatience, in joking, in jest, or mere surprise or from habit, with no idea of paying God honor. So if this does not honor God, then it is probably the reverence. The, the habit shows a lack of proper reverence, and this is the essence of the second commandment, reverence towards God. Many have the habit of exclaiming at every trifling circumstances, good Lord, or my God, Jesus, Mary, Joseph. Now, there are those that could use it properly or thoughtlessly, and it's irreverent and profane. It is a thoughtless habit that should be corrected. It is wrong, likewise, to quote Holy Scripture in a light or irreverent manner. It's tempting when jokes can be made of scriptural passages but that is improper. We try to watch them not to fall into this um, uh, lack of respect. Now we should distinguish between profanity and vulgarity. Uh, profanity is a sin of irreverence. Vulgarity is not necessarily sinful. Vulgarity is the use of coarse expressions <clears throat> like uh, devil or hell. <coughs> what the devil, uh, and so on, through thoughtlessness or habit. It is a breach of good manners, and if indulged in, will lead to profanity. Again, profanity is um, irreverence, and vulgarity is a coarseness. Now, if used with malice, vulgarity is certainly a sin to deliberately do so, but as I say often, we are thoughtless about it, and it takes away from the degree of, um, of guilt. By all means, we should avoid both vulgarity and profanity. Let us use God's holy name only in prayer and adoration. Irreverence to that name is sacrilege. We talked about that last week. Sacrilege is something against um, God or the things of God. Misuse of these things. Since by the sin we profane a holy thing. The Lord will not hold him guiltless that shall take the name of the Lord his God in vain. This is from the book of Exodus, the book of Moses. Among the ancient Jews, the word for God was so sacred that even the high priest could speak it only once a year at the Feast of the Atonement when he entered the most sacred part of the temple. It is a sin to take God's name in vain but ordinarily it is a venial sin. The Holy Name Society is a group of men that does special honor to the name of our Lord and of God. Unfortunately, sometimes even these members express profanity, but they try their best to honor the Holy Name of God. Now, what is cursing? Cursing is the calling down of evil upon a person, place, or thing. So to damn someone is wishing evil upon them. That's more than irreverence. That's wishing evil. And you can see, therefore, cursing is a serious matter. To call down some punishment on ourselves or other creatures of God in a moment of anger is cursing. 
if the name of God is used, then the sin is worse. And we know the two words that sometimes are used together. And we are to avoid them because they are so commonly used and so easily used. When angry parents sometimes curse their children <coughs> and workmen their animals or tools, often the one who curses does not mean what he says. But if he does, it is indeed a most grievous sin to ask God to damn a person or send him to hell. Sometimes the devil can pick up on these curses. You may not think they're important, but he can actually hear and then carry out the curse, whether you realize it or not, or intend it or not. But uh, do not take these things lightly. A Christian should never curse. For such as bless him shall inherit the land, but such as curse him shall perish. This again from one of the Psalms. The habit of cursing is an indication of lack of refinement and of self-control. Gentlemen do not curse. Generally, <clears throat> we know the origin of a person by the words that come forth from his mouth. One who curses it advertises his origin as the gutter. So if you have acquaintances or companions who curse a lot, think about whether or not they're worthy of your friendship. What is blasphemy? Blasphemy is insulting language which expresses contempt for God. It could be one of the most serious of all sins. Now, either directly or through his saints and holy things. Contemptuous or abusive language against God, scoffing at the true religion, or ridiculing sacred ceremonies. All these are blasphemous. Sacrilege is a form of blasphemy. Irreverent actions and thoughts against God. Now, these are deliberate, of course. Otherwise, they're not uh, sins. They're temptations, perhaps, or they are overcome and become virtues. But uh, sacrilege, irreverent thoughts against the saints and angels or holy persons and things, these are blasphemous. So we want to know the definitions that we can identify then how to evaluate them especially, for example, in confession. In the old law, the blasphemer was condemned to death, and that is in the Old Testament among the Jews. They were stoned to death. And this is from the book of Leviticus. And he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, dying, let him die. All the multitude shall stone him. It is blasphemy to speak scornfully of God or of his actions or to attribute to a creature a prerogative of God. Now, we are not that sharp and clear-minded about the finesse and the meanings attached to these activities, but this is why we have to study them and be on our guard then against falling into these aberrations. Thus the people blasphemed when they said, after King Herod that I had spoken to them, it is the voice of a God and not of a man. Blasphemy is a sin of the devil. By insulting language against God, one offends the Almighty directly, not only his image. Blasphemy is essentially malicious. Nothing ever justifies it. It's intrinsically evil. Not as other sins that arise from human weakness or ignorance. It is an inclination, and we have to fight this, but there is this inclination. But blasphemy is deliberate. 
and is one of the worst sins in the Ten Commandments. Whom hast thou blasphemed? Against whom hast thou exalted thy voice? Against the Holy One of Israel. This is from the fourth book of Kings. The soldiers blasphemed Christ, and so did the impenitent thief on the cross next to him. Deliberate blasphemy is one of the gravest sins. God punishes it even on earth with severe chastisements and in hell after death. God is not mocked, St. Paul tells us in the book of the Galatians. King Balthazar, he was a Babylonian king in the old times, in the Old Testament, used the sacred vessels of the temple in Jerusalem that he had conquered for his feasting. Then it goes on to tell, a strange hand wrote his fate on the wall, and that same night the enemy entered his city, killed him, and made his kingdom part of the empire of the Medes and the Persians. King Sennacherib blasphemed God and died by the hand of his own sons. But the worst punishment will be after death. One cannot blaspheme God and escape unpunished. They shall be cursed that shall despise thee. From the book of Tobias. Then we come to the next lesson, 99, on oaths and vows. What are the differences between these two definitions? What is an oath? An oath is the calling on God to witness the truth of what we say. It's also called swearing, which is not what we ordinarily mean by profanity, but swearing to call upon God to be a witness uh, to the truth of what you speak when there are no other um, evidences or testimonies or witnesses to, to uh, stand by you. So God will be called upon. Taking an oath is called swearing. In swearing, we call either upon God or upon something sacred. In solemn oaths, we place a hand on the Bible or kiss it, and sometimes we also kiss the crucifix. These are symbols then of an oath in the name of God. If we swear by God, such words are used as God is my witness, as God is my witness, or so help me God, as the Lord lives, and so on. If we swear by holy things, we say by the holy gospel, or by the cross of Christ, or we sometimes see in medieval uh, movies, by the holy rood, R-O-O-D, which is the cross. Such expressions as upon my word, by my honor, are not oaths, but merely emphasize assertions. There may be people who don't want to take an oath, so they, they use their own selves as a witness by my honor, by my word, and this is not an oath because only an oath calls upon God. An oath may be simple or formal. A simple oath is one between man and man in ordinary intercourse or conversation. A solemn oath is one taken before ecclesiastical or civil authority in the presence of an official. So when you go to the courtroom or when you go before a bishop, whatever, a priest, uh, to take an oath, that's um, called a, a solemn oath. An oath of public office is a solemn oath. The formula used in, uh, ends with, so help me God. You'll see that in movies, and that's the calling upon God to be the witness of what you're saying now is the truth. Our Lord swore solemnly when Caiaphas adjured him by the living God to tell the truth. Now remember in the 
uh, trial of our Lord before the Sanhedrin. The witnesses were not making much of a good case. They were contradicting one another, and the high priest knew he was losing. So he then drops everything else and said to Christ, I adjure you by the living God to tell us whether thou art the Christ. And Christ, under oath, then had to answer him, which he did. We must not take an oath of blind obedience to a secret society. It is lawful to take an oath of obedience, however, to a religious superior, because such a superior command can command obedience only in such orders as are in consonance or in agreement with the law of God and of the church. And if it's not, then it doesn't bind. And so we want to see that there's authentic validity to the things that we do. Now, a promise under oath, or an oath, ceases to bind under certain conditions. First, if it is relaxed by the person to whom the promise was given. He releases you. Secondly, if the object of the promise is substantially changed, no longer then is the burden um, that you first entered into it. Thirdly, if the object becomes sinful or useless, then it no longer binds. Fourth, if the reason for the oath ceases to exist. Then fifth, if a condition under which the oath was given ceases. You give a conditional oath and the condition no longer exists. Then finally, if the oath is annulled, dispensed, or commuted by lawful authority. That means... Uh, relaxed or released by someone in authority to commute that oath. What things are necessary to make an oath lawful? Well, first of all, we must have a good reason. It would be invalid to have a very light reason for, not, for making an oath unnecessarily. An oath properly taken is permitted by God and pleasing in his sight, but it must be a good reason for doing so. No one should be compelled to take an oath, however. So no one can force you to take an oath. It is not necessary to swear at every provocation, such as when friends do not believe us, or to emphasize statements. Such trivial matters should not be the subject of oaths. A number of people have the bad habit of raising the hand in a gesture of swearing every time someone doubts their slightest assertions. Thou shalt swear, as the Lord liveth, in truth and in judgment and in justice. Words of Jeremiah. Secondly, we must be convinced that what we are saying is uh, true under that oath. We must not play games. We must not uh, equivocate. We must be convinced that what we're saying is the truth. We could be wrong, but it's the sincerity that saves it. It is wrong to take oaths about what we do not know just because a friend asks us to swear to it. So you must talk about what you do know. If we take an oath promising to do something and in our mind we have plans of breaking our word, then we are swearing falsely. This is against the second commandment. If we take an oath before a court of justice saying we saw such and such a person in a certain place at a certain hour and we know we really did not see him, then we are swearing falsely. We must think well before taking an oath. Rash oaths are sinful. Again, 
the lightness of the matter in the sense that a person doesn't realize these things doesn't make it as serious until we learn as you are trying to do now. Thirdly, we must not swear that is take an oath to do what is wrong. Not to do this ever. We are bound to keep our oaths, but we should never keep an oath to do evil. If one is so unfortunate as to have made such an oath, an evil oath, he should promptly determine not to keep it or he will commit greater sins. Herod swore to grant Salome, the daughter of his unlawful wife, anything she asked. When she demanded the head of St. John the Baptist, he gave it to her. Thus he committed a worse crime by keeping his wicked and rash oath. What great sin does a person commit who deliberately calls on God to bear witness to a lie? A person who deliberately calls on God to bear witness to a lie commits the very grievous sin of perjury. It's a serious, grievous sin. Perjury is false swearing. One commits perjury when he confirms by oath what he knows is not true or what he is doubtful about or when he swears to a promise which he does not intend to keep. So be careful then about these oaths and swearing. Perjury is a grave sin because it insults God by calling him to witness to a lie. Perjury before a civil court of law is punishable by imprisonment. Remember, Alger Hiss, who was a communist, a secret agent, was sent to jail not because he was a communist, but because he committed perjury in the testimony he gave under oath in the court. Regarding the non-fulfillment of an oath, the sin may be venial or serious, mortal, according to the importance of the matter concerned. So if it's a light thing, then it binds only lightly or venially. The witness who swore falsely at the trial of Christ committed a grave sin of perjury. If we have to be witnesses in a court, let us pray God to deliver us from the sin of perjury. If circumstances arise that prevent our keeping a valid oath, we should consult our confessor to know what to do. And he may commute it or release you from it. But he has the authority to do so under God. And finally, what is a vow? A vow is a deliberate promise made to God by which a person binds himself under pain of sin to do something that is especially pleasing to God. Be careful not to take vows easily or quickly uh, because they do bind. A vow is made to God alone, not to anyone else. The subject of the vow must not be a mere trifle, so avoid the levity or the lightness, but something good in itself and better than its opposite. A vow is the most solemn promise we can ever make. We make promises, usually they bind us only lightly, or not at all, according to the intention, but a vow does bind us. A vow made under compulsion is invalid. No one can force your free will. <clears throat> A vow to do something that will offend God must not be accomplished. You don't carry it out. In general, we should consult a confessor before making a vow. And young people especially um, get into trouble sometimes when they really haven't made a vow thinking because uh, they haven't uh, been that attentive to what's required, so they're not really bound, and then a confessor can release him. It is better not to vow than after a vow not to perform the things promised. Remember when uh, 
uh, Ananias and Sapphira gave their property to the church in the Acts of the Apostles, and then they took back some of the property, and God punished them severely. They didn't have to give the property. Once they did it, it belonged to God, and then they stole it from God, in a sense. So be careful when you buy your, bound your, buy, bind yourself in a vow. You're not bound to make a vow, but if you do, then you're bound to do it. Otherwise, you will then sometimes sin by not accomplishing what you vowed. Sometimes vows are accompanied by certain conditions. For example, in 1248, St. Louis of France vowed to lead a crusade if he got over a severe illness. Now, did he get over the severe illness or not? Then he was bound or not, according to the condition. In our days, people vow to go on specified pilgrimages to get cures of sickness and so on. They have a vow that binds them into keeping this vow. So be careful. It's not a light thing. We must not confuse vows and oaths with mere promises or resolutions. Every January 1st, people make resolutions and then they don't keep them. They worry that maybe they've broken a vow. No, it's a promise and a resolution that does not bind you. These last do not bind under pain of sin. For instance, some make a promise not to go to shows or dances for a certain length of time or things that you say that you're going to do for Lent. They do not commit a mortal sin if they go, if they do these things. For simple promises and resolutions do not bind in a pain of sin. However, we should not make promises or resolutions that we are not in earnest about keeping. Therefore, you want to learn to be successful. And when you are successful in a small thing, you tend then to create a pattern of success in even greater things. But don't break small things because then you will break larger things or more important things as well. A vow is most pleasing to God because it is a voluntary offering made to him. Voluntary, free. The most important vows, or the most, yes, the most important vows are the religious vows taken by those joining a religious order. Vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. If they keep these vows, they get double merit for doing a good thing and under a vow to have the benefit of this obedience binding themselves in a special way. But if they break the vow, they commit two sins, that of the sin and the vow that they also break uh, in um, this manner. By the religious vows, a person gives up the world entirely, consecrating not only what he does, but what he is to the exclusive service of God. So a nun, um, a brother who takes vows in the religious orders, they're especially dedicated to God. And to attack them is to attack God. And they should live worthily, of course, to the objectives of the religious life to become more and more Christ-like. And if they break these vows, they are doubly punished. But they belong to God, not only what they do, but what they are. And finally, non-fulfillment or needless postponement of a vow is a venial or mortal sin according to the importance of the matter. So again, we have to judge according to the seriousness of the conditions involved. And it takes some little refinement of your knowledge of theology and the definitions involved. And then on, on the moment or at the, on the spot to make that kind of a determination so that you know how you bind yourself and what the consequences will be if you don't keep what you have promised. So if it's not an important matter, it's a venial breaking of that promise. The guilt is doubled if at the same time one transgresses a commandment 
as when violating a vow of chastity. If we are not able to fulfill a vow, we must consult our confessor about having it annulled or changed into some other good work. Uh, if a nun leaves the convent, she can have her vows commuted by a confessor because they bind her even if she leaves the convent until they're lifted. So there are procedures that have to be observed. And finally, the vows of children may be canceled by their parents, bishops, and other superiors who have authority to release or dissolve from some vows. So children uh, make promises, and if they make a vow, their parents have the authority because of their immaturity. And many people do these things without the full awareness of what they mean, and therefore their intention is accordingly diminished as well. So these are the things that concern the second commandment of God, and they're not light. Many people don't pay that much attention to the second commandment, but it is important because it represents God in his name and has everything to do with the reverence that we give to God and all things connected with God, our friends, our neighbors, your church, and yourself included. So have respect for yourself because of the respect you also give to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.